Callaway's new and improved Chrome Soft family of golf balls is better for everyone, from amateurs to major winners like John Rahm, Phil Mickelson, and Annika Sorenstam. Now, with Callaway's proprietary new precision technology, the Chrome Soft family delivers Callaway's highest quality, best performing, and most consistent golf balls. To learn more about precision technology and the new and improved Chrome Soft, Chrome Soft X, and Chrome Soft XLS, visit callawaygolf.com.au. Hello and welcome to episode 57 of The Thing About Golf, Golf Australia Magazine's ongoing attempt to answer the question, just why do people get hooked on this absurd game? Rod Murray's my name and alongside my colleague John Huggan, we have the great privilege of bringing you in-depth discussions with people from every imaginable corner of the game to find out just what is The Thing About Golf for them. On this episode, we're going to peek behind the curtains into the career of a man who's really had two golf careers, first as a player and now as one of the game's best-known voices in commentary. John Huggan joins me now for a quick preview of his chat with New Zealand's Frank Nobolo. Huggy, welcome. We're so familiar with Frank Nobolo for his TV work these days, I think we forget just what a player he was. Well, it's it's easily done. I mean, we're talking um, well, 20-odd years ago now, um, he was kind of at his peak in the mid nineties. It, it seemed like just about every major, every time we turned round, Frank Nobolo was in contention on Sunday afternoon at the major championships. He was incredibly good, incredibly hard golf. I think that was his that was his strength. The harder the, the course got, the better Frank yeah. got. Yeah, nineteen ninety four. I forgot he played in the final group alongside Ernie Els. Now he didn't have a very good day, and we know that from the leaderboard. But through three rounds, he was close enough to lead to be in the final group. So that tells you. I think he finished top five at the Masters as well. Yeah, uh, on a on a, at least one occasion. So beautiful lines to Frank's golf swing. Anybody who hasn't had a look at Frank, go to YouTube and look it up. Beautifully orthodox. If you were going to draw a golfer, it would look like Frank Noblo at setup, would it not? Yeah, he was one of. I mean, he's one of my favourites. Long before I knew him. Um, just I just loved to watch him play. I mean, he was you know, kind of like Ernie Else was the same. Ernie Else attracts people just because of the rhythm and the the beauty of his swing. And Frank was like that too. I mean, beautiful golfer, and as you say, just so ortho. I mean, I don't know what orthodox means these days. <laughs> no, but, um, Frank Frank was orthodox if we could, if we can call it that in the classic sense. Yeah, he was not Matt Wolf. <laughs> no, he was not. No, <laughs> What he is, he's eloquent, thoughtful, intelligent. These are all the traits we don't get to see enough of from people like Frank on television, don't we? It's a point that you've made more than once, which is a shame in some ways, but we get to hear a lot of that in this interview, don't we? Yes. I mean, he's, he's you know, I mean, I know Frank fairly well now, having got to know him over the years since he stopped playing and became a broadcaster. And he's one of those voices that I'm kind of drawn to him. It, it, his voice commands respect, if you like. I mean, it makes sense when Frank speaks about golf. I mean, it, it, you never think, oh, hang on, what does he mean by that? It's it's, it's always very, very clear. And, you know, I'm, as you just you know, you touched on there, I'm not the biggest fan of uh, some broadcasters who shall remain nameless, but Frank, on the other hand, is uh, is terrific. I mean, I, I'm, if he's talking, I'm listening, put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Well, it's the medium with television, isn't it? It's kind of, They're kind of not there to talk about the bigger issues around the game. It's why podcasts have become so popular yeah. in golf. What we do get from Frank, at least as well as any other commentator in the game, is fabulous analysis of what's happening on the golf course right in front of him. He's got a great golf mind, doesn't he? 
he does, and it's it's. I mean, it is difficult, especially on American television, where that's it's almost like sound bites. I mean, they're they're so quick to jump from shot to shot. Um, you don't really get the chance. He's not didn't get the the opportunities that say Peter Alice got when he was working for the BBC, where he would get to wax lyrical, if you like, and he was given the time and the space to do that. Frank and his colleagues, I'm not sure they'd get that chance very often, but um, Frank makes the most of it. Put it that way. Indeed. Well, let's let this let the listeners get on it. It's a long one, but a fabulous one. I'm sure you enjoyed it, Huggy. It certainly sounds like it from what we hear, and we get to hear an awful lot of what Frank thinks, and that's to the good of the game. Thanks for joining us for the My episode. pleasure. Frank Nobolo, welcome to the Thing About Golf podcast. I, the listen, regular listeners will, will know what I'm about to ask. I always start with the same question is, uh, what was the thing about golf for you? Um. Th- Individual sport more than anything, John. Um, I played a lot of sports when I was a kid growing up. Most kids in New Zealand did. They're obviously exposed to rugby. The All Blacks are so prolific. Um, but, you know, my parents were going through a tough time. I needed a game really I could hide in. And um, golf and tennis were really those two games. Tennis was my first love. And I played with a guy called Chris Lewis, who was, sorry, Mark Lewis, who was Chris Lewis's younger brother. And Chris Lewis actually lost to John McEnroe in the final of Wimbledon. I think it's the biggest loss to this date. It was a, yeah, it wasn't close. Yeah. No, exactly. Um, I think he beat Kevin Curran in the semis or something like that. But Mark was like ahead of him, but, um, I mean, he would just draw me on the, on the tennis court, just kill me. But, but, uh, there's three of us basically, a guy called Chris Treen, whose parents played golf. Mark and myself, and my first ever game of golf was uh, when I was 13 at a place called Chamberlain Park. They're trying to close it down now in Auckland. It's a public facility. Um, we ran out of daylight. I played 15 holes, shot 101. Um, I'd actually swung a club a couple of times, but never really played golf. And, and it was just a game that I really felt like um, coming from a country so far away, you could just lose, let your imagination go crazy and just play. And I like the fact that it was there were so many different facets to it. From driving, we obviously, even like today, you could try and hit it as far as you wanted to. And then, then you had the finesse part of the game and then obviously the mind and uh, even the architecture. Every hole looked different. So, so I embraced the challenge. I embraced going out there every day, trying to get a little bit better because there was a, you know, golf, as we all know, even today, it's so frustrating. And, and I think sometimes you learn more when you're exposed to a game that doesn't have instant gratification. How soon did it become clear that you are, that there was some talent there? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I took to, I, I was sort of a, a big kid. I was six foot when I was 16. So I thought I was going to get taller and I never did. So I was lucky in a lot of the sports that I played. I was a middle distance runner. I had the school record for 800 meters. Couldn't do it now. And, um, so a lot of games I took to quite quickly. So golf was the same thing initially. So by the time I was 16, I was on, I think I was sort of scratch. So in three years, but, but it wasn't until really two years later, um, it was a fluke. I, I decided to play, I was 17 and I entered the New Zealand amateur, uh, with a friend of mine. His, his name is Ivan Ledica. He was going to be my foursomes partner. So you had foursomes at the start of the week. They were almost like practice rounds. And then you got into your qualifying rounds. And in the qualifying rounds, I got to play with a guy called Stuart Jones, who was arguably New Zealand's greatest ever amateur. And, um, he just, you know, it was his home course. It was, course called Bridge Par and Hastings. And he said some nice things in the paper and, and it's weird, you know, when you're seventeen and somebody in the in the game that you look up to, especially the amateur game, says something that you don't think is worthy at that time. And then the match play started and I'd win a match and win another match and then lo and behold I got to the final and the final was on my eighteenth birthday. 
And and I played a guy called Peter Maud, who was a New Zealand international. I remember beating him ten and eight over thirty six holes. And Stuart Jones watched watched thirty six holes. And and then he sort of some glowing praise. I got to play the Eisenhower that year, which was sadly in Fiji because Fiji's only a two hour flight from Auckland, New Zealand. And and I was then I got exposed to Bobby Clampett. He was also eighteen. I thought I was a right for eighteen. And I saw him, he was playing with Gary Cowan, and I can't remember the third player. Gary Cowan was the best player in the world, best amateur in the world in those days. And Bobby was so impressive. And that American team had Scott Hoke, uh, Jay Siegel, and John Cook. I mean, it was, it, was, it was a really strong side. I think we finished like fourth or so, but um, it was a chance to see the best amateurs as well. And then, as I said, my parents were going through strife. So I was... Uh, you know, left with that decision. What do you do? Do you capitalize on what's happened? Played for New Zealand junior level as well as senior level. And I decided to turn pro when I was 19. And, uh, my, my, even my first tournament, um, I'll never forget really because it was, uh, Air New Zealand's first ever crash. It was the, the Erebus crash in the Antarctic it was on the eve of the, uh, of the pro-am. The event was run, won by David Graham, but, um, you know, that's how I started and, and kept going. In those days, you could travel around the world. You still can, but not a lot of people try and go that way now. Yeah, I mean, everybody I've talked to of, of uh, your era, if I can put it that way, um, and I know you were in Europe for a good 10 years or so, um, everybody talks mm. with great fondness of the European tour that, that was the European tour and how much fun it was and the camaraderie and, uh, and all the rest of it. Uh, changed days now, I think, but it's still there to an extent, but not quite what it was. Um was that your experience? How much fun did you have when you were jointing around Europe for a decade or so? It was the time of my life. Um, Mike Clayton is a good friend of both of us. I remember we were traveling around in a Fiat 128. Um, I think there was five <laughs> of us trying to squeeze in with clubs. I mean, you couldn't do it. It's just crazy. You know, It was like a Chevy Chase movie. You could see luggage hanging out the side of the windows and all that as we'd try and traverse around Europe. I remember uh, the first car I could afford was a uh, Ford Capri. And I put that thing on boats and, um, you know, I drove around on the wrong side of the road, you know, all sorts of things. But you learnt, um, you learnt more about yourself. Uh, you, you had to beg, steal and borrow. Friendships were very important. I remember like John Bland was like a mentor to me. And, and I could, you know, I could spend an hour of two hours just telling John Bland stories really on number one, how he helped me as a golfer for a start. Um, I would call them Blandisms. And, and also as a, as an individual, I remember the Irish Open one year. Um, you know, I didn't have that much money and John Bland, who was a, a very good player in those days, I had a courtesy car and there weren't very many of them, remember? So courtesy car was going to pick him up at the Irish Open and, and take us to the golf course. So he was going to give me a ride. So I wouldn't have to pay for a taxi because in those days you did, you went on trains, planes and automobiles. And um, Colin Montgomery had just turned pro. So I'd been a pro for a little while and Monty had got there and it's not Monty's fault. And he was expecting to get a ride. He'd come from a short stint in college in America and there was no ride. And um, so he sees the courtesy car and the courtesy car driver and he goes, well, I need a ride. And John let him take the car. And I remember, so he said, it's all right, we'll get a taxi. And um, I remember saying to John, isn't that educating bad behavior? And he said, no, it's not bad behavior. He doesn't know anything other than that. And I think to your point, that's where the tour did start to change. Because if you go back five, 
five or six, seven years before that, that's when I first got to Europe. I mean, you did. You paid taxes. You caught train fares. You did everything. And you, everybody stayed in the same hotels. So even if you had a disagreement with a player on a golf course, and there was many of those um, both ways, you, you sorted it out. Um, you, you grew up, you're on a bus a lot of the times going to golf course. Asia was the same. Um, you know, I remember uh, first meeting Bill Ray Brown in the back of a bus in Hong Kong telling stories, you know, so there was a kid growing up in America and a kid growing up in, in, uh, in New Zealand and just fraternizing on the back of a bus telling stories and humor is different, as you know, in every country. So there's, yeah, there's so many things along, along the line that, uh, that frame your personality. But yeah, I wouldn't swap that upbringing for anything. It was, it was a time of my life in Europe. Yeah. It, just making a cut was a big deal. Monday qualifying. Um, and then trying to go to the next event, um, and, and on and on. But you got to see places. You got to know what a dollar was worth or a pound in those days. Um, it was very important. It's, it's not become, uh, well, it, back then it, it kind of was the route to America uh, for the, the ones that were good enough, you included, um, mm. from Australia and New Zealand. Um, it's less so these days, but it seems to me that, um, let's see what you think, um, that two or three years at least in Europe, is a great grounding for ones who are, you know, on the stepping stones up to something better or bigger or certainly financially more beneficial. Um, how do you feel about that now? Is it still the way to go or should you go straight to America the way? No, no, I don't think you have to go straight to America. You know, it, it is about money in the end because once you turn professional in any sport, you know, people, I hear the phrase growing the game, even in what I do now, but it's not, it's, it's a job, right? So as much as you love the game, you're trying to earn a living, uh, whether it's look after your own family or create a future, whatever the case may be. So one of the advantages that nobody talks about on the, on the PJ tour, as opposed to Europe is a pension. Yeah. And, and people are, well, what are you talking about? These players are, are playing for millions of dollars. I mean, you know, someone needs to do, go and write an article on the pensions, on what some players will receive. It's a phenomenal program. Um, you know, Europe does not have that luxury. But but going back to your question about having to play in Europe or not having to play in Europe now, there wasn't the equivalent of Nike, Buy.com, Corn Ferry, whatever you want to call it now. And, um, for example, like a Jason Day, and, and you know me, I'm going to go off on tangents as usual. But That's all right. A Jason Day was I, lucky, I like your tangents. Was lucky enough. <laughs> yeah, he was lucky enough for the for the. Buy.com, I think then, um, it touched Australia. So he won a tournament. I think it was a Kionga in, in South Australia. And that w- con- consequently led to a start. So his decision to go to Europe was stopped. And it was like, Hey, I've got this golden opportunity and I can, I can sort of maybe shorten the curve if that's really where you want to go. But, you know, I've always thought to be a, a, a really good player. You have to, your game has to translate. You know, there was a nickname once for Robert Allenby. I mean, he was called by his by his peers and friends. You know, Guinness didn't travel well, um, and that was he hated that name. And obviously, he became a very very good player around the world. But that was the thing. You know, um, Europe in in my day, if I want to use that era, you know, you had um, six bona fide world number ones. You know, your your Seves, your Faldos, your Langers, your Lals. Um, I'm going to obviously miss out a couple of players. There was he. So, so it's not like it was you were playing a second tour by any stretch of the measure. You were playing the world's best players, and they chose to play a lot of events in Europe. I think that part's changed a little bit. You know, Wentworth was a massive tournament, massive. The Irish Open was huge. I mean, the the galleries were only second to the Open Championship. So there, there was that's three events just there straight away, including the Open. I mean, they were phenomenal to play in. 
And and then you've got other events scattered around Europe that are also very, very good. That's It's sort of been affected by the PGA Tour on, from a date point of view. Hmm. So the European Tour no longer flong, uh, flows um, easily from week to week to week. It's sort of there's a really good month like coming up in January or February, and then there's nothing for a little while even though there's tournaments because people want to go and play in America, and then we can put a few in around the Open, and then we'll, we'll give some, you know, let America go again, and then we'll do some other. So for someone going, you know, developing, they go, well, why would I want to do that? So in some respects, that forces them to go to America. Yeah, a few years ago, I remember talking to you at Wentworth um, when you were there um, commentating, and you lamented the the state of affairs back then. Was your feeling was that there should be more cooperation between the PGA Tour yeah. and what was then the European Tour, now the DP World Tour? Um, that that seems to be happening. Um, how, how do you see that developing? Uh, or, I mean, I cynical me fears that uh, the PGA Tour, it's, it's more of a takeover than a merger. But um, how do you feel about that development? Well, if I had a crystal ball, John, I think in 20 years it, it, it will be a takeover. But in order for golf to continue to um, fill the coffers of the athlete, they, they, they need big sponsors. And you need to pull from Asia. You need to pull from Europe, from the best companies. Let's look at Formula One, what they're doing when you go to various countries that can pay that bill. So I've had this discussion not only with you, but you know, five, over the last five to ten years, that there will be a world tour of sorts. And I think the best way to have it would be a cooperation of you know Europe and America for a start, because you could use the existing tournaments right now on the landscape, the memorials, the Wentworths, the, the Irish Opens, the what used to be Durrell in those days, the equipment, you know, you can pick easily garner 30 great events. You don't have to change one iota. And therefore the sponsors are well, well represented. I don't, you know, whether it's the BMW from a Europe or, you know, a Mercedes type thing, or the, you know, some of the South Korean sponsors, the Hyundai, you know, the, the people that have kicked in the money, they deserve to have events scattered around. And it, it would, it would work well, but your player will be like a tennis player. He will play everywhere. And that's, and at the moment, that's the fight because TV has a big part of that. And at the moment, TV has a, a massive in, in, uh, investment in the PGA Tour, whether it's you know Golf Channel, NBC, and obviously who I work with now is CBS and Sky. So there's big dollars there that they just simply want to, want to keep there and not necessarily scatter around. And Europe's always struggled with its TV dollar because of, of, of the sort of splintered country situation. I mean the the strategic partnership or whatever they call it. Uh, it seems it, it it did sort of come out a backwards way in that um, it, the Saudi development that is uh, the talk of the town at the moment. Um, I mean I know that the the European Tour had an offer from the Saudis and used that as leverage. You know they went to the PGA Tour and said, "Look what we've got here," and the PGA Tour then said, "Okay, we need to get involved to stop the European Tour sloping off with the with the Saudi money." Um, where do you see all that happening? I mean, I know it's all, you said crystal ball a minute ago, and this is definitely crystal ball stuff because mm. nobody really knows what, where this is all headed. But um, how how do you view it um, from your perspective? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Um, no idea is a bad idea, right? So at the moment, it's, you know, the, I've read, you, know, you we would have read the same stuff, you know, the, Bonesaw Classic and whatever and, and whatever uh, clever things that can be written about it. But, you know, you go back, for example, Saudi, it used to be a protectorate of Britain 
for a start. And then on the other hand, it, I think it outlawed slavery in 1972. So it's a relatively new, um, a new country. I, I remember going to the London School of Economics where um, our daughter went to school and, and there's uh, Nelson Mandela made a speech there. It's up on the walls. And I'm paraphrasing, but effectively, he said, our country is 150 yards behind. Do not judge it the way you judge judge yours. And I know you think, well, what's that got to do with Saudi Arabia? Is that, you know, it was an ally through Afghanistan. I mean, America was quite happy to use it to launch planes and all sorts of things. So there's a there's an element of convenience when we have these discussions. So I go into it saying, okay, no idea is a bad idea. Why, you know, why is it being touted about now? Well, obviously, it's about money and designing golf courses. That's That's a big thing there and then it's like why you know which which players in particular are really keen on it and i would imagine that's 40 and above um in other words you're you're not necessarily competitive so you know the answer is going to be money but is there anything that you really could pull out of that and i was uh doing an interview just recently and the analogy i gave was if it was like a moscow circus as a kid growing up i wouldn't have seen the circus if the moscow circus didn't come to new zealand so if it was 40 and above, and it really did travel around the world, and you got to see players that five minutes ago were some of the best in the world, then I think it's a good idea. If it's a competition, just purely to the PGA and the European Tour, then I think it's definitely a bad idea. Because you know, I, th- I think it's, it's, it's literally trying to own golf. You know, I, There's a lot of things I disagree with on the PGA Tour, but there's a lot of things I think they get right. And I would say the same for Europe, because I had, I had you know, 10 or 15 really good years there. Um, and it's... To quote an Ayrton Centerism, who used to say pure driving, I think you know it's pure golf, and we've got to we've still got to go as close to possible. You know, you and I have talked about the rules in golf, like the fact of just trying to pull a driver back from forty eight to forty six when nobody's really using it. Yeah, I mean it's 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 honestly the the selfish interest in that, and and you know golf courses are going crazy. Like I said, I'll go off on a tangent, but um, you know we, we've got to be careful in that and go, you know. We've still got to, we've still got to keep golf where it should be as this great sport. It's not about fun. It's not necessarily about growing the game. It's allowing people to have access to it. You know, we, we have black marks on our game. It's an elitist game. Um, volleyball, for example, has twice the rating as what golf does. Volleyball. Nobody talks about that. You know, I'm not talking about cricket or soccer or whatever. Volleyball worldwide. Um, and, and so we, we've got to look at our sport really differently. One thing we are, we are very fortunate. We have a very good demographic. So once again, it comes back to money. And I think if we play with that demographic and make it only about money, then, then, then we have a particular problem. And I think that's where the Saudi thing has come about. It's almost like, well, we can buy this game. Yeah. And I think I mean, some well, of the manufacturers have done that. You know, let's buy 30 yards, you know. Plus, we're, you know, we're all, you know, ultimately, we're all hypocrites in, in some way, shape, or form in this. I mean, you can look yeah. at it, if you want to slightly wryly, I think, is to look at the, the Saudi money as basically they're giving us our money back, all the money that we've given them for the oil. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just our own money. They're spending our money, really. Well, and throw in Venezuela. Um, mm, America yeah. gets more oil, as much oil from Venezuela. I mean, that's hardly a paradise. So, yeah, we're... we're we're very quick to just turn the eye on that or issues in South Africa, the, the Aborigine in Australia. I mean, you know, it marries in New Zealand. It's, you know, the list goes on. So even we play in Germany, we play in Japan. I mean, my, my dad uh, sadly passed away this year. He would never buy a Japanese car up until 15 years ago. So we change and, and we have to evolve, but it doesn't mean we have to conveniently 
um, head down the wrong direction and just say all's well, it ends well. So, so no idea is a bad idea. If it was, like I said, a Moscow type circus thing and, and it really did go around, like as a kid, if I got to see, um, and I did, you know, Jack Nicholas actually played at Chamberlain Park, as did uh, Arnold Palmer. Now, they played like an exhibition type match. Um, they wouldn't have come to New Zealand any other way. They didn't do it just to, just for the hunting and the fishing, you know. Tiger Woods did the same thing. He played in Wellington, and that was great for the Danny Lees growing up. Mm. So you know, there, there is some good that can be done, but as an opposition to the PGA and the European Tour, I, um, I would vote no. Yeah, I mean, I, speaking of Tiger playing in the New Zealand Open, I was there that week. It was uh, it was the easiest week I've ever had as a journalist. I mean, the stories just kept coming. It was some of it was absolutely hilarious. Mm. Uh, what was going on? I mean, it was it was quite a week. My my favourite moment though was remains. Um, Greg Turner um, jogging out to the tee where he was going to start in the pro-am and being rugby tackled by one of the security guards who thought he yeah. was chasing after Tiger for some reason. <laughs> it was a, a great moment. They didn't know how to handle it, yeah. And there was a, a golf cart being driven around by another two of these security guards with supposedly golf clubs sticking out the back, and it, one of them was a rifle. <laughs> it was wonderful stuff. Yeah, classic. Did you actually play in that tournament? You know, I was, because uh, that was about the time you were finishing, was it not? Yeah, the last New Zealand Open I played actually was in um, in Auckland in two thousand and two. So I think the answer is no, because I didn't play. That was normally opposite, like the World Cup. Yeah. So I think the answer is no. We, we we need to touch on that. I think um, I, not everybody out there will know. Um, well, they'll they'll have some idea of what a good player you were. Um, but no idea as to why you stopped when you did. Um, can you give us? I know it's not a, it's probably a painful story for you, but um, can you can you give us a a, a summary of um, how that came to pass? You want everybody to know why I'm bitter and twisted. <laughs> well, you, th- that's why we're friends, Frank. <laughs> Fair comment. Yeah, um, I uh, I got diagnosed in 1996. Well, I actually had my what I consider my best year. I think I had top tens in all four majors in 1996. And uh, because of that too, I was I had access to a, a PGA Tour card. And I'd also won that year the, the European Tour, Tournament Players Championship in Germany. So I had a five-year exemption. So it was almost a no-brainer. So I went over for my rookie year in 1997. And um, just after the Honda, which was in... Uh, Slightly south of West Palm, I forget the exact. I think it was Eagle, Eagle something was the name of the golf yeah. course. They don't use it anymore. And I remember going to the fitness trailer, and and I couldn't put my watch on. So there's a guy called Ralph Simpson who was a like a used to train the Olympians, and then the PGA Tour to brought him up. Really good physio, and I'd got to know him by the you know the the frequent times I'd gone and played in America. He was always at the big events, and he goes, "Man, what's up?" I'm like, "I don't know," and and so. You know, my both wrists had blown up. He said, "You should see about that," and they were painful as hell. So I, um, I, I pulled out, and then uh, I was with IMG, and and I said, "Hey, I got a problem." So my wife and I, Selena and I, we flew to Rochester, Minnesota, the Mayo Clinic there, and I spent three days there. Oddly enough, I think that's also where uh, Olathaba was misdiagnosed. Yes, um, initially with his, his foot problem, um, which is sad. What a hell of a player he he was, and and. Yeah, that's a, another story. But um, so I spent three days there and they said, you've got inflammatory, inflammatory polyarthritis, poly meaning both sides. And I had it in both wrists, both elbows and both shoulders. So for a golfer, that wasn't much fun. 
And uh, Scotsman was the, the head surgeon that I was uh, seeing. Dr. Ian Hay, you might know him. He's often at the, the RNA and all that. Yeah. Absolutely. So he prescribed some, yeah, he's prescribed some medication so I could get back in a plane because I'd finished fourth at Augusta the year before. So I desperately wanted to go back. And I was on a drug called Imuran, which is an auto, uh, immune suppressant, Plaquenil, which is like a mild form of chemotherapy and Prednisone, which is like a Wanda drug. And me being me, 36 years of age, I didn't research any of the side effects. I'm like, Hey, it's fine. I mean, the pain's starting to go. I can play and, and then I managed to win uh, Greensboro. I think I won the Mexican Open and uh, Hong Kong that year, but that's the last time I ever ever did anything of, of, of sort of note. I, I, three wins. I, I actually broke the money record in my rookie year. They wouldn't give it to me because I'd played more than 10 tournaments previously on the PGA Tour or something. That was the VJ Singh rule. They changed the rules, so I couldn't get it, and they gave it to Stuart Sink instead. Not, not that, not that you're bitter, bitter, obviously. Bitter about that. Yeah, yeah not that I remember that. <laughs> um, so I always remember the, the first year that Stuart Sink got on tour, 1997. Um, and uh, it just it got worse, and then I tried to keep playing for a little while. I sort of I hung around there. I think I'm still actually on a major medical back in 2001. <laughs> right, okay. There's still a prospect of you coming and, back, is there? Yeah, yeah I'm going to do a, a comeback, yeah. But um, once again, that's where I go back to players like John Bland, where they, where they early on they tell you, you know, you shoot eighty or whatever it is, or double bogey the last to cost you a tournament. It's not everything, mm. and um, at the time it really was. And I felt cheated. I felt uh, someone had stolen something from me. You know, I'd wake up in the morning, I'd have to get up at ridiculous hours in the morning, just walk on a treadmill just to get my bo- you know, the bones sort of moving. Then go to the fitness trailer. You know, I'd. I'd travel with hot wax all sorts of things to try and warm up the joints and play and keep taking the pills and that and then i did start researching the side effects due to a uh, i had a, a dermatological um appointment a friend of mine um it was actually a good friend of Payne stewart's dr gutierrez and he goes hey i just got to ask you what what you're taking i told him the three drugs he said man you've got to be careful and i'm like what are you talking about and and i just tore my hamstring at the tournament of champions and he goes oh well you know the side effects i'm like what so then I went back, researched it, and I realized that, you know, I had two choices, either to keep playing golf and um, like that and probably, you know, shorten my life or, or try and look for something else. And so I started to um, wane a little bit. My golf is my – I think I drove my wife crazy. Uh, she saw that I was more miserable than normal. And, um, and then it, it was tough trying to wind it down. Uh, it, it really was because I never, ever thought of a plan B. And I always said that to people in pro-ams. You know, they'd say, oh, what are you going to do after golf? And then I, I always said, if I knew that, if I knew the answer to that question, I still believe it to be true, then I shouldn't be out here playing golf because you need to be fully committed. Yeah. And I still say the same with young players today. When I chat to them, I said, you know, if you're worrying about next week, next month or whatever, you know, it's, that's the motor racing driver attitude, which is also one of the sports that I love, is that you cannot be thinking about crashing. You cannot be thinking about the next race. It's like right here and now. Um, and that's that's the way it is. But when you stop, you do. You think like a, a normal person. And it was a tough adjustment. How, how do you feel about it now? I mean, you know, we'll get back to the near things you had in two or three majors. But, I mean, how, has time given you a different perspective on the on not being able to play? Or, or is it still a frustration? It must be, I would imagine. No, I'm actually over it now, to be honest. Um, I, I don't play. I haven't played for several years now but um my wife could probably answer the question better than i could to be honest because she had to put up with it but yeah. um 
being involved in golf and, and getting a job in TV, which I was never cut out for that. It was never on my radar. But what that did, unbeknown to me, was involve me in a game. And then after about, I'm going to I'll be honest, it's, it took six, seven years. I started to realize, I thought, hang on a minute, golf actually treated me well. You know, I did a right. Um, didn't do what I wanted, but I did a right. And then I've been given a, been gifted a job, really, that I didn't have, you know, I wouldn't have had the qualifications for much else. And I'm, in, I'm still involved in this game. So I started to see the game from a different perspective. And, you know, we have a foundation that's 19 years old now. You try and affect younger kids. So there's, then there's an obligation to say, well, hang on, you've, you've actually done a right. Um, it's still a great game. Um, doesn't matter that you don't play it. Uh, but for everybody else that's playing. So I started to look at it from a different prism. And, and, and I still think it's a phenomenal game. It's a great game. I love the way the guys play. I don't like the equipment necessarily. Mm. We'll get I to that, Frank. Don't topic, you worry. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't like the fact that they give – but I, I love the commitment of a lot of the players because that hasn't changed. So when there's that sort of purity that they really just want to go out and be better tomorrow than what they were today, I love that. You know, there's an innocence in that. And that part hasn't gone. So I started to see it differently. And now I'm, I'm like, I'm okay with it. I, I, you know, that ship is well sailed. And, you know, I try and occupy my, my time and other things. I try and be a better broadcaster now and, and realize that I was given a second chance. So maybe use this similar commitment into that. Well, well I'm going to do a little twist on that same question uh, that I just asked you. Um, there was a period in the mid-90s, early mid-90s, where it seemed like every time I looked up, you were on the leaderboard at a major championship. Are there moments, shots, holes that you look back on and you think, well, I'd like to play that one again? Everybody's got them. Yeah, fleetingly. I, I, you know, I try not to indulge too much, but you know, I remember playing in the last group with Ernie in, uh, at the US Open in 1994, and I started two back, but to be honest, you know, I, I, I don't like to admit it, but when I was in the locker room, I didn't think I had a chance to win. I know, you know, I had won tournaments from there, but it was my first ever US Open. It was actually Ken Schofield that got us in. Up until then, yeah. they only used to take, I think it, I think it was the top two on the money list. Ken, Ken extended that to top 15, and Ken was there, and he goes, thanks. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm about to play my last round sort of thing. He said, it's validated what we were trying to do. Yeah. So, you know, that's also why, you know, my wife grew up in in in, in England, and and uh, my daughter, you know, she lives there now. And so, you know, it's still it's still part of who I am. So I was proud to be to help that part along. But when I was getting ready for that final round, I just didn't see my name on the top of the leaderboard. So that was a mistake, you know, only through inexperience. It still finished top ten, but it it gave me a chance to. Um, to at least believe then after that, because, you know, in retrospect, you look back at some of the shots, maybe, why did you do this? Plus, I saw the guy that won, yeah. um, albeit in a playoff with Lauren Roberts and, and Monty. But the following year, uh, you know, we go back to um, where Steve Jones won. Oh, am I going? Oakland Hills. Oakland no, Hills, not yeah. Oakland 96, Hills. 96, yeah. Yep. Uh, 95 was Shinnecock, sorry. Yeah, Shinnecock. I played with the guy that should have won, which was Davis Love. Davis, uh, Davis had about a two and a half footer on, um, uh, 16, the par five to tie the lead. And then he finished like bogey, double bogey. We finished on the same score, like seventh or eighth. So I played good in back to back US Opens and I felt like I'd seen two guys really, one guy did win it and the other guy that really should have. And as good a player as Davis was, I'm like, okay, so people make mistakes. And then the following year, 
really to sort of answer your question uh, was Oakland Hills. And that's when I had my best chance. I, I remember the, um, I actually saw Camilo Vajegas hit a sand iron into this hole, but I remember hitting a drive and three iron into, I think it was 15 long par four. And I flushed this three iron and I, two putts I would have tied. Um, and I three putted and the, and the, it was 14, 15 is 15. Yeah, it's 14. 15 is a dog leg left par four. And it's nearly drivable, and I tried to. I had a go at it with a driver and hit it in the tree, and you know made double and you know whatever. And, and that was that was the one where I felt like um, I actually had the best chance, and and I, my game was ready and whatever. When I finished fourth, Masters in '96, that was you know Greg Norman and Nick Faldo. So I was you know I was just a I was a supporting cast. Yeah, yeah. I mean you, you touched. It, it was fun. It was, it was good to see your name up on the leaderboard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as I say, it seemed like you were there constantly at that in that period. Um, but you, you touched on an interesting point that I bang on about sometimes. Um, you know, Schofield's influence in getting the you know the leading not 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 the leading Europeans, but the kind of half a rung down guys into the the major championships, which I always kind of roll my eyes a little bit when. People use major championships as the sole measure of greatness, if you like. I mean, it's only a fairly recent thing that the the world has gotten to play. I mean, the three of them in America every year. Most players like Sam Torrance, Mark James, Howard Clark, Ken Brown, those guys, they only got to play in one every year. And I mean, Seve played in mm. the Masters in 1980 when he won the Masters, and because he finished in the top one in the Open the year before. The guys who were runner up, runners up to Seviat Lytham didn't necessarily get to play in the Masters. So it's only a recent thing um, that the Masters, uh, the majors, to me, are actually a great measure of, of you know, an equal measure, if you like, of players across the across the planet. It, it, it wasn't always the case, and fairly recently as well. Yeah, no, you're right. It wasn't. The, the biggest influence really was the world rankings, um, and we can disagree with those. But in 1986, when they started, at least there was a balance of power. There were uh, there was another avenue to get in. So because if you if you're an Australasian player, and there were a lot of good players from Australasia, you know more Australia than New Zealand, um, then they also created avenues. And then you started to see that success, whether it was the David Grams, the Normans, the the Devlins, the Nagels. Obviously, Peter Thompson was the was the champion of that course because you know what Tomo did, and 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 he really didn't play that much. And then South Africa had its Bobby Locks, and then Gary Gary Player, and 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 on it went with the the next generation. But but back to Ken, yeah, Ken was Ken was a visionary. You know, he rubbed some people up the wrong way, but he was trying to champion the course of the players. And and Ken was also instrumental in the Ryder Cup. You know, with Tony Jacklin, he pleaded to get Jacklin as a captain. And and also they had a plea to get Seve on the side. And then, you know, I've talked a lot with Nick Faldo over that p- particular period of time. You know, Nick actually couldn't get into a lot of those U.S. Opens. Yeah. I mean, his game was built for a U.S. Open. And you're right, he was denied. So while people have gone back in retrospect and talked about the majors in the 50s and the 40s and the 60s and all that, it's, it's – there's very much, you know, like like tennis. You know, there's the modern era and mm. and the open era. You know. Yeah, I mean, there was a. It's a shame, really. It's a, huge, a shame. Huge American bias. If you look at the, you know, the all time list, um, there's certainly a bias yeah. towards the Scots at the beginning, but um, that soon changed. I mean, if you, before the before you know, even the seventies, it, it was totally dominated by Americans because, you know, the Neil Coles and Peter Alice, they hardly ever got to play. They got one major a year, and that was it. And, and on top of that, too, you had a ball that you had to – it was a different ball. Yeah. So, you know, 
So you had to go across and play in three majors with a with a. With a when I grew up, I played the small ball, and um, so it's a bit. It was a big change for a lot of that. So why would you? Why would you go across? despite how big the tournament was and completely have to change your equipment. Yeah, that, that always makes me laugh when the people bang on about the roll, rolling back the ball. We've already had a roll back of the ball oh. everywhere in the world except in America. We, You know, I lost about 20 yards back in the early 80s when you had to switch from the small ball to the big ball, and I'm sure you were the same. No, exactly, and, th- and that's where you, you get these convenient arguments that, that people will, will say what happened three seconds ago was so much more important and, and is, is factual. And I'm like, yeah, but it, but it has no bearing on really the direction we're going. And um, it, it is a shame. There's a multitude of that, you know, where equipment change. I remember talking to Gene Sarazen. I was lucky enough to win his event, the Sarazen World Open, back-to-back in 95, 96, I think it was. And he gave me a replica of his uh, forward, which he hold out, you know, for his albatross 15 at Augusta. But I got to go back by virtue of playing well in his tournament. And uh, that was actually meant to be a world golf championship event. But um, through the stroke of a pen, that was denied. And then Panos put his money into motor racing. But, um, you know, there was a dinner, you know, you get to sit there and, and uh, you know, there was Jack Nicholas Payne. You know, there was, there was a lot of good players that were there. And you get to sit around the round table with the squire. And he was telling me about the sand iron when, you know, he was trying to uh, decipher, for want of a better word, a way out of these pot bunkers that he was going to play in the Open Championship. So he came across the sand iron. So he would put the club in upside down so the grip end was sticking out so nobody could see what he had in his bag. And um, he never got a dollar for that club, by the way, or the or the forward. Uh, he got a lifetime contract with Wilson, but, um, you know, zero royalties. So, you know, there, there's always been tweaks along the way, but not massive shifts, you know, and people will say, yeah, the golf ball's changed, but, yeah, I mean, but, but when's enough enough? You know, that it's, you know, when you reduce a golf course to um, nothingness, then it's no longer the game. You know, power was, is, is a huge part of the game and should always be, but power is relative. It's relative to the people you're playing against as well as the golf course. And if, 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 if both are relegated to nothing, then it's pointless. Yeah. Well, well, I always uh, lament yeah. the, you know, the demise of some wonderful golf courses. The, the one I always go back to, there's a perfect example, is, is one that you'll have played many times in your time in Europe, was, was Sunningdale. I mean, oh, if there wonderful. are 10 better courses all in the world. You. Yeah, the, well, the old I'm talking about, really. And it's now obsolete. Mm. or de- It's defined as obsolete for yeah. guys at the highest level. I mean, what other game would allow that to happen? It's madness. Yeah, I remember playing with Seve there, and he hit a three-wood out of the, it's the last par five on the back nine, because it's par 70 there. And he was battling to make the cut. Now, you know, it sounds like a bad Seve story when you say he's battling to make the cut. It, it, an amazing player and, and just wonderful to play alongside, fun and all that. But he, I couldn't have got a seven iron over this lip. And I know people think I'm exaggerating. He had a three wood because he was on the cut line. Like, sorry, he might have been one out. So he's fighting. And he must have hit this thing in those days, 230 yards, which is a, a hit. But to get it up that quick and over the lip that I promise you would have been my best seven iron to get it over there and get it on the front to try and make four to get it back on the cut line. And then um, drove it under the lip of a bunker on 18. And I remember all he could do was flop it out. And now he'd made another bogey. And he paced, must have paced 100 yards. And uh, walked back, got it to 10 feet and made it. And he finished up missing the cup by um, by shot. 
But I'll never forget thanking him. I said, thank you for the lesson. I mean, there's, that's guts, fortitude. That's how the game's meant to be played. It's not about just smashing a driver and flipping it on from one side to the other. I mean, that's always a reward, but not a reward on every single hole. Think of the fun, if you want to say fun, that you're actually missing out on really what the game's about. It's meant to be a challenge, you know, it, and all I've heard over even my playing days was, oh, you know, if they grew rough in here, if they did this, you know, if they could make this whole 30 yards longer. If they did that on every sport, you imagine if all of a sudden Ronaldo starts kicking a few more goals. Well, let's make the soccer pitch, make it 10 yards longer. Yes. Let's make the rugby pitch. I mean, you couldn't do it because of the stadiums. But we've done that in golf. They don't do it in tennis. That's why tennis, believe it or not, they, the longest a racket can be is 29 inches. Just about every player uses a 27-inch racket, right? The one guy, uh, Diego Schwartzman, uses 28. But the reason why they're, they're not close to the maximum is because they've limited the size of the court. So you can, and also they tweak the ball as well. But but if they kept doing what golf did, which was let's make the court bigger and bigger and bigger, they would have the same problems. People would be pushing the envelope because I need a bigger, faster serve. And every time we add on 50, 60, 100 yards to a golf course, it opens the door to make a driver go longer and further because that's the only part we're doing. We haven't changed any other part of the golf course. We've added 30 yards on, so give me 30 more yards. So we've done nothing. Well, it's, done nothing. it always amazes me, and I'm, I'm sure I've, you've probably heard me say this because I've said it many times, but I've never understood why golf is the only game that has protected the equipment at the expense of the venues, whereas every other sport fixes the venue to protect the equipment, you know, the, the, the other way around. I mean, it's just it, none of it makes any sense. You know, they, they fix the equipment so that the venues work, right? and golf's done the opposite. It's weird. Well, yeah, hey, it's it's a bit like we're talking about whether it's Saturday. That's about money. It always has been. I mean, look look what's been banned this year: green books. And I know I don't like visually with when I when I do my job on TV the time it takes. But you have a slow play rule, right? Which often isn't imposed. Forty seconds, seconds for the second person to play. If a guy wants to get it out and doing that and take and and legitimately take forty seconds, I'm fine with that. But there's like two two people out on tour that that do the green books. So yeah, don't get me wrong; they make a good living. But they're hardly they're hardly making the money rangefinders make, yeah, um, and all that you know. And you know, Dean Beeman and Jack Nicholas started the whole yardage thing when they pace it off and it'd be on a scorecard. So Peter Thompson used to take lines on his little notebook at St Andrews and say, "This if the wind's coming from the right, you aim at this tower, and you know that steeple and whatever." So people have always tried to take notes. I kind of like the Bryson DeChambeau in the sense that he's exposed this. Mm. In a weird way, I and and so I applaud the fact that it hasn't. It's no longer under the radar. It's come across like um, let's get Bryson because Bryson's gone for the long driving thing, which really is impressive. Don't get me wrong. Um, what he's what he's some of the things he's done are quite quite amazing to to be able to morph from a player to a just a pure long hitter. But you know that when he when he had the um, compass out and they said no, you can't do that, and he's you know the, the level, all these things it. At least he's exposed it, and we go, oh, my God, how did this happen? Well, people have been doing it for yonks. Yeah. And and finally, it's like – and he's he's got the blame for it all, but it's like everybody's like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll take this. I'll do that. You know, 43-and-a-half-inch drivers have sneak, snuck out to 45, 46. And then Phil, you know, when Phil says, oh, well, what about tall players? 
you know, like, well, what about seven-footers? Are we going to keep them out of the game? So what, a seven-footer is only going to play with a driver? What is he going to do with the other 13 clubs in the bag? They're obviously going to be too short. So I mean, there's some crazy arguments being thrown about. So there's no no one's using any logic or actually being truthful about it. It's like, let's just, let's do a, let's drop a big smoke bomb and, and hopefully no one will really see what's going on. And, and I really do, hey, the, the RNA and the USGA, have they made mistakes? Yeah, they have. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, they have, the, nobody... Um, nobody wants to give them the time of day to just let them help help this along. Everybody's making it. A, I mean, it's a bit like Massey and Formula One in the weekend. They're trying to make his, make their job as hard as possible, which is a shame. Yeah, I mean, I know that the I was going to get to this later on, but we're, we're kind of into the subject. Um, I know that they have to be worried about the the old course um, next year at the Open. If we get some decent weather, which unbelievably can happen in Scotland, uh, here in Scotland. <laughs> if we get a flat, calm week, I mean, I can see multiple scores in the high 50s um, happening. And two ways of looking at that. One, one I'm, I'm, it, it appalls me that that would, that would happen. On the other hand, the anarchist in me thinks, well, just let it happen. And maybe that's the tipping point for something that has long been long overdue has to will happen because of that the the old course the kind of ultimate monument to all that's good in the game being shamed like that um i don't know how you feel that that's obviously how i feel about it but uh, where are you coming from on that subject yeah i i have lost sleep on that and and i i have an affinity with the old course because when i turned pro they started an event called the Dunhill Cup, which was a team event. And by virtue of coming from a small country, I got to play. And I think, I think I played in more Dunhill Cups than anybody else because I could represent New Zealand every year. I paid for my first house, but I got to play the old course every single year. And I think I also got to play two open championships there. So I got to see it, admittedly, a different time of the year in October, um, as what it is the open in July, but I got to see it play differently every single day. Yeah. And I remember the first time I ever went there, which was 1984. And like everybody, and I've read about it too, you're you're underwhelmed when you first go around. You're like, all this for this? And then I can see at the end why the the Bobby Joneses and the Nicholases say, you know, if I can only ever play one golf course, because there's a beauty about it. And and it really is a joy to play in the sense that you get so many different types of shots, providing you get to play them. I remember playing Curtis Strange that very year. And, uh, you know, like the double greens, they all add up to 18. And I'd, I'd got it out. I was like one under, and Curtis was the best player in the world. Um, mid-80s there for a while. And I'm like one or two ahead of Curtis Strange. I'm giving this look like I'm a 24-year-old kid from New Zealand. Like, hey, I thought he was good. I gave him like one of those looks. <laughs> and then Curtis, who's a good friend today, he gave me one of those Curtis looks back. And um, we're still sort of fairly close, and we go to 13. The par four, and and you know it's got the the fifth hole, which is the, the the enormous green on the par five. They share, and so the 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 flag on the fifth was on the ex, was on the extreme left for that hole, which made it you could almost mistake it yeah. for center on um, on on thirteen. And the flag was actually way right. So I see Curtis here, and he's like drawn level, and he's got the I love I love the look, the angry Curtis look. He's a good man. Yeah, and uh, he he just pipes. It would have been like a six iron. He just pipes it. You can see him half run up the hill because he's you know he knows he's flushed it, and it's going straight down this flag. But I'm looking at. It, I was like twenty yards further up, and I'm like, that's forty yards left of the flag. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so I sort of look at him like that, 
and and I and I, I innocently and I should never have done it. I go wrong flag. Now I can't say on this what he said back. <laughs> I can but, imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think I made eight at the uh, on the hell hole, and and uh, and he con- completely you know completely buzzsawed me coming in. But it started a friendship. But but yeah, I mean, it, it, the place played different every single day, every single year, and it's a shame when. You're right. This generation or people going forward are going to say, "Oh, that's just a drive in a chip course," and they will never, you know, like when when Seve, uh and Tom Watson, that great Open Championship in 1984. When when you look at Watson uh, group behind, you know, Seve trying to make his four at 17, and then Watson hits it over the back on the road, not out of bounds, and you know, then the great putt on 18. You know, the, um, Simon Owen finishing, you know, second. Simon Owen in New Zealand finishing second to Jack Nicklaus in 1978. Um, you know, there was like, you know, there's some, so many great memories of, of, of some of the shots that they had to hit coming down into the breeze. So yeah, it'd be a travesty. I just hope that if, if you say the anarchist in you wants to sort of blow up, I, I hope we don't get a Lance, Lance Armstrong like moment where we sort of have to say, well, hang on a minute. Something's gone completely wrong. Mm-hmm. And there's a period of time in golf we say that really didn't count. That's. That's the way I look at it. I, I don't. I don't want us to reach that point. I feel that we're eerily close. Yeah. Well, I mean, people always ask me, well, how would, where would you go back to? And I, my answer is always, uh, you go back to the point where they st- really started messing around with the old course. I mean, I, I, I wrote an open, the first open where they had the the new tees that uh, Peter Dawson wasn't too happy with me when I, I pointed out that this was the first open championship that was being played on five golf courses at the same time. You know. <laughs> there was tees. The one tee was on the Himalayas putting course. There was a tee on the the ninth tee was on the new course. The fourteenth yep, tee yep. was on the and Jubilee. The um, obviously, they're, they're playing the old course, and the, if you count the you know the seventeenth tee, which is you know over the fence on the driving range, out of bounds. Yeah, exactly. And the, and they're now growing rough uh, in places where you know the, there should there shouldn't be any rough, hardly any rough at all on the old course. But there's now rough all over the place. To the point where um, on the 16th hole, the principal's Noah's bunkers, um, the rough to the left of that is, is within a few yards now of the principal's Noah's bunkers. To the, so everybody's going to play the same shot, short left and play from there. There's no incentive to, to, to risk too much. Everybody will play the holes the same way, which is the ultimate damnation of the old course because, as you just said, it's, it's different every day or should be. And it's, it's in many places now it's going to be the same for everybody. Yeah, and the beauty of playing St. Andrews, you could play the safe line, which was down the left on every hole, but it gave you the hardest second shot. And then all the, the pot bunkers that are, that are sort of scattered, especially on two and three down the right side. You know, that was the beauty of that, of, of, of also having to, to sort of feel where the, the trouble was. And even going back to 2000, where Woods was, uh, uh, he, he was so overcome with how much ball control he had. The fact that I don't think he hit a single fairway bunker, right? No, well, he just flew, he, he flew them all. And, that's why. <laughs> I, yeah, but but it was for him. It was like he he'd controlled the tee ball up until then. He was known more for a longer, and he'd actually. That's when we started to see a Woods that was just on a different planet because strategically he he just went up a complete notch. And then Hoylake was a was a different way of attacking mm. a golf course, and we started to see the best golf that I'd ever seen in my life. Um, Pebble Beach, and, uh, I think, was the best for me at 2000 when he won there. Yeah. Mm. And that's, you know, I, I remember being 
writing an article, I, I tried the odd time to write an article, and I, I, I couldn't put up with the abuse afterwards because I remember saying Welcome the only time you could say that Tiger Woods – yeah, exactly. That's why I don't do it. Um, <laughs> The only time that Tiger Woods might have had an equipment advantage was around 2000 because the neck prices had gone to the solid ball. He was using a precept. Mm-hmm. And then Mark O'Meara in 1988 had done well, obviously winning the Open and the Masters, um, you know, which is the precept, the Bridgestone. And then Woods, through his friendship with O'Meara at the time, because living at Arworth, was basically, oh, let me hit that ball. And I'm like, well, hang on a minute. It goes further. It goes straighter. It doesn't curve. And then he, he got the jump. Up until then, that, that ball had been around for a long while, and nobody had really – doesn't matter. Nick Price, great player, mm. didn't change the field. Woods had it, and 18 months later, everybody was using it, yeah. using the equivalent anyway. So you could argue that's the only time, but driver – he never went for the 48-inch driver, never went for the 64-degree wedge. It was just playing golf, played uh, played on a different level. Do you think anything's ever going to happen? I mean, I know – I remember you telling me about uh, – Players dinner at the Masters in the early nineties, where everybody kind of rounded mm-hmm. all the players rounded on the officials and told them something needs to be done. Well, we're quarter of a century on and more, and and nothing's really happened um, of substance. Anyway, do you think anything is ever going to happen on that front? Yeah, I do. Uh, I'm still hopeful. I think you know once you give up, then then. Hey, you might as well jump out of the game, whatever capacity you're in. It's interesting you mention Augusta because I. Whether they like it or not, I, th- I think they hold some of the keys. Uh, and, and oddly enough, it's through amateur events because, you know, honestly, they deserve kudos for – and you're going to think just because it's in my neck of the woods. The Asia-Pacific Amateur Championship, I just did that a month yeah, or two ago yeah. in Dubai. Uh, yep, exactly. And um, and also they've done their Latin, you know, the Latin uh, uh, Amateur Championship. And you're going to say, well, okay, so what? It's it's two events, right? But it's the people that are involved because the Asia Pacific one is is a deal basically is brokered between Augusta National and the RNA, right? Yeah. So it's a, it's a collusion to try and say, okay, what can we do to help here? And then the Latin America is with the USGA and the PGA of America. So you're now starting to get people in the same room, um, and you get the PGA Tour on board and the European Tour, then, then all of a sudden that conversation could be held. I like the way Rory McIlroy has uh, is, is stood up and said, look, we don't need 48. We, he's saying we don't need those two inches. And, you know, hey, hey, sometimes we put too much pressure on Rory's shoulders. I, I, I love what he says 85 90% of the time. Um, I, I, sadly, I don't think he should have to have that role all the time. Mm. But I applaud the fact that, I, I think, like I said, generally his heart's in the right place. I mean, I, I, you're going to see a Tiger Woods probably do the same thing that Jack Nicholas did, which is wait till his career's over to really start to use some influence. And I know that's eerily close. Um, you know, Jack, when he played, was, hey, I just, it's not his fault. He was just trying to be the best player he could. He wanted the best equipment in those days, too. Handmade woods and um, compression tested golf balls, if, you know, they went through his dozen or whatever and they checked them all. It was an advantage. Um, I know Tom Weiskopf couldn't always get the same equipment yeah. Jack Nicholas did. You know, you'd only get a couple of sets. So, so it was different. Whereas nowadays, you know, the good side is a 16-year-old amateur, doesn't matter where, they, where they're from, male or female, left or right-handed, can get the same equipment as the best players on the PGA Tour, with the exception of the driver, because the driver costs money. The driver, uh, you know, if you, if you really – I was telling a friend of mine, you know, he was looking for a driver, and I'm like – I know you can go and get tested. It's going to cost you like $400, you know, 300 euros. But I said, you're only going to test on one day. These guys are basically testing three, four times a week, really. 
and the, if you want to say their launch monitors are behind them, so they can fine tune it like an F1 car. So they're, they're getting a benefit that really they don't need. It's the, if it's designed for the average amateur, then it should be easier for them to get the reward, not the best players in the world. So basically what we're doing is we're... You can sum up the whole thing with that. what you just said, is that the, the top players are, are using equipment that was designed for the, the handicap amateur. Yeah, and and it's also changed the game because you know the, the ball that doesn't spin or spin sideways as much that that was designed to keep it in play. And and some there are some positive things, you know, the wider sweet spots, the more forgiving head. Um, you know, you could. I know people have talked about trying to reduce the size. I mean, there's there's some things where the ship has probably sailed, but just giving people yardage. You know, like the I could bore you with the mathematics on it, but you know, basically for every quarter of an inch extra on a robot, you should get one more mile an hour of clubhead speed. And from every one mile an hour of clubhead speed, you effectively can get, you know, potentially 2.5 yards. So you start adding a couple of inches and you can see, you know, you're, you're adding eight mile an hour. Now all of a sudden you're adding 20 yards. So, um, but if everybody on the tour is doing that, well, well then really just taking it away, then everybody's in the same boat, right? Well, it, I mean, so, I, so that's why I don't. I don't. See the, I, I always feel sorry for the for the the truly talented ones that that you know the at the top end of the game. Now, Rory's the, the perfect example. Is that you know he, he's the best driver in the game. Let's say if he's not, he's damn close. Um, but he doesn't get mm-hmm. the benefit from his talent that he that he should get or or did get or would have gotten back in the day. I mean, uh, that that to me is the biggest problem. And when I bang on about this, I've had players say to me, "Well." We're just as good as the, you know, and if not better than the, our predecessors. And I said, well, yeah, you, you might be. And I think there's a very good case that you are, but you never get the chance to show it because you don't play the same game anymore. I mean, I, I've said this many times that, you know, nobody plays like Seve or Lee Trevino anymore. So how can the game be better? Yeah, that's a, I, I think there's style points in there. Uh, I, I agree with most of that. I, I actually think, you know, we want our children to be better than us. So through evolution, there should be. But sadly, we are in a generation now where we, we just give our kids more, mm. right? We go, well, do we really want them to struggle? No, okay, here's another $1,000 sort of thing, yeah. or here's a new car so or a new cell phone. So sadly, we, we don't, you know, like if heaven forbid now you, you, you give hardship to your children to make them stronger. I mean, your social welfare will take them away from you. <laughs> yes. So, you know, we're, we're in this really, really weird spot. You know, we, we love everybody and we hate everybody at the same time, you know. The country that was great ten years ago is now our enemy, and all sorts. Of, I mean, we—you know—it's a really weird place that we're in now. And um, but but just going back to that, you're right. I, I would argue Tiger Woods would have won more, mm, much more. Yeah, you know. So we, you, he, he was disadvantaged um, because it was a way for others to catch up. I mean, I've never been more obliterated on a golf course by any other player than like playing with alongside Tiger Woods. It was it's like Seve. I remember Seve hitting a, a bunker shot on the 18th hole the downhill par 3 at the Lancome. And um it's like the Friday round. And he had a guy called Max Cunningham actually was yeah, Cunningham. Yeah, day. he's one of your countrymen. And, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And uh he was short-sighted himself so he had you know bugger all green. He had a 56-degree wedge, and I'm like, I know he's good, but he got nothing here. And this thing came out like, just like, you know, cotton wool, mm. and it just ran. If it didn't, if it didn't go in, it was going to miss by, you know, by an inch or so, and he hold it. And the the scary thing about it, he wasn't sort of overly um, shocked. 
And and then the greatest compliment I can give to that, we're playing at Augusta when they changed to threesomes the first two days. And I'm playing with Tom Watson and Biasteris. And the second hole, the par five, I can't remember. It's Thursday or Friday, to be honest. But Seve hits his, and I don't know if it's his second or his third shot, long left on the second. And the and the, the pin is back left, which is ferociously fast. It's downhill. Augusta had started cutting the grass in the other direction. So basically, he's got nothing. He's about 15 feet over the back, and he's got about eight feet of green. He's got nothing. And he's actually got to be really careful. This thing's going to go all the way off the green and down the other side. So there I am playing, you know, with two people that I idolized, you know, Watson. And Watson's a pretty good chipper in his yeah. day. So Sivy gets up and he's fluffing around and he's picking up a sand on and he's picking up an eight on and whatever. And I'm like, you know, well, you, know, you got nothing. Why don't you go? And he hits this shot. It takes like two bounces and it's done with, it probably was a, like he hooded in a little sand on. This thing limped on the green and you could read its number and it's rolling and it's rolling. And it, I, I don't even know how you can get a ball to nearly stop and roll. And, and the thing went in, right? So I'm in the middle of the green, 25, 30 feet away from the flag, as is Tom Watson. And he just turns to me. As only a great player could say to another great great player, and he said, "You know that you know the the scariest thing about that is that's exactly what he was trying to do," mm. and that was the greatest compliment. And I, and I just fear that some of these amazing players today they are, and you know, Rory's in full flight is just a beautiful player, and they have a place in in golf's annals of, of great players. They really deserve that spot. But people, I don't want people to say, "Oh, that's because they use such and such." Well, that's because they use such and such. I was watching um, some old Ant and Center stuff. I loved Ant and Center. And, and um, you know, when they used to have a gearbox, mm. you know, where they had a gearbox, they changed gears and yeah. clutch and all that. And, and you know, the, the Verstappens and the Hamiltons, I mean, they're tremendous today. And that, But uh, the, you hear the comparisons, oh, well, the cars are different. They don't have to do that. And it's a shame. Golf is still a great game. And, and so we've got to somehow restore the balance so that, in a weird way, the players aren't criticized for mm. – for supposedly having less talent when they do, they practice no, like hell. No, I've never argued and some that. of the shots. Yeah. Some of it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, but 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 that's you try and tell that to the players themselves. They think it's an insult. Yeah. I said, no, dude, I'm actually on your side. Mm-hmm. I want people to realise how good that shot actually was. But people will just think, oh, that was a utility club. Mm-hmm. You just got it up, or hey, that's uh, you know, you don't carry a three iron or whatever, or you know, like it's a, it's just the club that did the work, you know. But that was so, certainly so, the, the, there is the case sometimes. I mean, I. My Seve story, or one of my Seve stories, is that I, I did a column years ago saying, lamenting that, as you just mentioned, that he could do things with a 54-degree wedge that nobody else could do, basically. But then the 60-degree wedge and 62 or whatever came along, and, and it gave lesser gifted guys the ability to hit the shots that only Seve could hit. And that took away some of his edge. Yeah. The equipment did. And, and it was it was nothing to do with talent. That That was the equipment allowing people to hit shots that they had no business hitting, really, that only he could hit, probably. And and he agreed yeah, with me. Yeah, yeah, well, he, as he should. Um, <laughs> he could do it. Mean, I, I remember Mike Clayton going back to when I first started in Europe. It was, I think it was the Scandinavian Masters, and we went out and we watched. Um, there's a par three, and it was blowing a gale. There's water left of the screen, and everybody, everybody was trying to hit it across the water, and it was getting blown to the right. You know, they'd missed the green by 30 yards. I mean, it was a really windy day. And Sevy got up there and he's mucking around on the tee. And it was my, it was the second time I'd ever seen him live. The first time, um, you know, I'd already played in the morning, was actually at Royal Melbourne. And, and he hits some incredible shots there. But anyway, so he's, he's standing on the tee and I'm like, this is straight, you know, it's a par three straight over the water, right? I mean, there's nothing to it. Now, there was a little bit of, uh, uh, um, 
grass and that round the right side. So it's almost a crescent-shaped fairway to get to the green. But, you know, it's a par three, so you don't even look at that. Anyways, mucking around on the – finally, it's, it's like a six iron or whatever. But he finally pulls out like a four iron. He hits a low hook, almost following the fairway line back into the breeze. And I'm like, I don't even know how you could see that shot. And then, I mean, yes, we used to play some practice rounds at Augusta. We'd play the nine-hole course for a bottle of wine. And I'm and uh, but we're playing a practice round on the on the proper course, and we get to 16, and he wants to skip it, but he wants to skip it left-handed, and he skipped it left-handed across the water, <laughs> and I'm like, I just looked at him like, no, no, that's not, that's not, no, I'm not doing that, I'm not, I can't, I can't do it, you know, like so, yeah, yeah when you see shots like that, it's like you know the Tiger Woods Hazeltine shot, the ninth hole. Mm. I remember I was quite pally with Ernie Else in those days. He was living in the same community community I'm, uh, I'm in now, and Ernie was playing with him. And it, Ernie, they were vying for number one in the world, and he goes, this is the greatest shot I've ever seen. Mm. So those are the comparisons you want to to have, and, that, and that's not because of a number on the bottom of the club. No, I mean, the, the, the last example to, that I can think of of that was, was Tiger at the last President's Cup uh, at Royal Melbourne. Uh, Mike Clayton and I walked around w- watching Tiger play that golf on that golf course. It, t- Tiger was was by a mile the best player on either side because mm. he knew how to play it and and he had all the shots that required of, of such a wonderful course. But the rest of them were playing the normal game in comparison to him. But it was a beautiful mm. thing to watch, and I'm glad I saw it, especially given what's happened since. I mean, we might never see Tiger playing at that level again, given his injuries. But, uh, oh, my goodness, it was just – it was an education to watch him, how he played that golf course. That that particular golf course brought out the best in him. Yeah, sadly, there's a there's a touch of Van Gogh in, in him, isn't there, mm. where he's, he's going to hurt himself and as he's done. But I, I guess when you're that brilliant um, and that good, but, uh, you know, there's just, there's just too many things that um, – you know, when you look back and you and you you want you want people to there's so many people that he got into the game like he's a legitimate star. Oh, yeah. You know, golf. Even when you talk about the the game, the the growth of the game. You know, it used to be Hollywood around the world, whether it's Sean Connery or the Bing Crosby's of the world that really were making golf famous. Mm. So if a, if an A an A lister star went and played golf, more people thought, oh, what a what a really good game. And then. You know, they would have the Pebble Beach type events and all that. And, and the talk was really about who's playing, not the professionals. And Tiger Woods, you know, Norman you know, made a big deal, you know, obviously a big name and all that. But Arnold Palmer was probably the closest thing. And then Seve really didn't play those type of events. But it wasn't until Tiger Woods came along and played that you started to see that the golfer themselves could actually be the star, the real legitimate star. And the Michael Jordans started talking about golf and, and the Steph Currys and, you know, the, the motor racing drivers play golf and they all talk about Tiger Woods and, you know, Nadal plays golf and, you know, like that because, you know, it's Tiger Woods. So golf had a legitimate star that not only earned a tremendous amount of money, but, but drew people into the game. And that, I don't know, sadly, we've, we've got on the coattails of the growth that wasn't necessarily generated by the game itself and the direction we were heading. We got on the coattails of one player who was fantastic and was a star. He was the first golfer who's ever been the the most famous sportsman on the planet, and it'll be a long time, I think, Mm. when another golfer gets to that title. Um, The old phrase, he transcended the game. I mean, everybody, you know, my grandmother knew who Tiger Woods was. You know, everybody knew who he was. 
He was Muhammad Ali mm. and Michael Jordan. And I always think when people mention Michael Jordan, somebody once said to me that the basketball couldn't pay Michael Jordan enough. And golf was like that with Tiger. I didn't. I never cared how much Tiger was getting for appearance money because it wasn't enough. You, you couldn't pay Tiger Woods enough of, enough money to play in your tournament. But sadly, that's what's creating the problem now. We're trying to sell a game to people on on the growth that was developed by a player who's probably no longer going to be, or we're going to get access to. So to me, that's that's not a good deal. You know, like. No, well, I mean, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it, it just it, his value to the yeah. game was such that you, you literally oh. couldn't pay him enough. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I was, you know, hey, I was on, I used to get on the coattails of some of the guys' parents' monies with IMG. You know, you go out to Asia and then you get to play and you get some money there because you were, you know, fifth or sixth or seventh or eighth down on that list. And I remember Woods' Greg Norman was the number one player in the world. Faldo was there. Curtis Strange was there because I remember we the hotel where we're staying and we go on the top floor and get a helicopter to the golf mm. course. That sounds pretty, yeah. Uh, I don't do that these days anymore. <laughs> and um, Woods was there and, and Woods had not won the masters and he was the biggest draw mm. because, you know, you're going to a place like Asia and, and a lot of the people thought, well, Hey, he looks sort of like us. And he was very clever there with the, uh, what was the word he used? Cabal, Asian yeah. or um, the type Cabal-Nesian of uh, person he was. And yeah, but it allowed people to identify, identify with him. And also he was new. It wasn't, um, nobody knew what he was going to develop into. So there was a newness about it that was, you know, they just lined the field. I never forget the opening tee shot. They were just lined like 10 deep down both sides. I'm like, this kid hasn't even won a major yet. And then lo and behold, you know, the five minutes later he wins Augusta and it's, yeah, we're all wrong. But yeah, fen- phenomenal ride. Yeah. But, but yeah, he, he, he's, uh, and he traveled and he traveled. Yep. It's true, yeah. Um, Frank, I, we, we kind of touched on the President's Cup a minute ago. Um, I, I'd, it'd be remiss of me not to, to talk to you a little bit about the President's Cup. You're, you've got, um, along with your teammates in 1998, you've still got the honour of being a member of the only international team to win that thing. <laughs> um, does that fact surprise you? And then, then we'll get into talking a little bit about Royal Melbourne 98. Um, in, in retrospect now, no. Because if I go back to, you know, the President's Cup started in 1994. Oddly enough, we mentioned Ernie, who won the US Open. Ernie did not play in that one. He he honoured it. Uh, he played the Dunhill Cup, which the format had changed then. And um, so he, uh, he, he rep- represented his good friend, Johan Rupert. And also, he didn't know what the event was going to be like. But from 96 on, we had um, Ernie else. Num- got to number one in the world. Greg Norman obviously had more weeks than anybody else prior to Tiger Woods. Nick Price, VJ Singh. Uh, we had our equivalent of, of really the, the biggest difference in Europe, uh, Europe's Ryder Cup thing when you yeah. had the big five. So we had a nucleus uh, that was every bit as strong, if not stronger, than the American nucleus. And you know, I'm still a great believer, whether it's Ryder Cup or President's Cup, you know, the, the, the best players have to do their job. Because you can't expect the tail. The tail are not the mm. strongest players. You can't expect them to do the damage. If they do, it's a bonus. But you have to go strength against strength. So we had, in retrospect, top heavy, uh, and we, we haven't we haven't had it since. So, you know, as uh, 
you, you can't replace another Greg Norman. Or you can't replace another VJ Singh or Ernie else and that. And until they do, um, they will struggle. So, you know, the international side, which also, you know, I, I know people have talked about it, the fact that it's tough to get people together. But I don't know. I've changed my mind on that. When I played in there in, in 1998, which was um, <clears throat> the only one we won, the MVP, in my opinion, was Carlos mm. Franco who didn't necessarily have a great record, but he created that camaraderie. And I think Europe's done that. I think Europe has every reason to have the problems that America said it had. Tough to get a team to go together. Well, you've got the same country, right? Same flag. Europe, for some reason, because of its tour, embraced their differences. You know, Seve and, and, uh, you know, and, and Nick were, they grew up as adversaries. And yet for a team, somehow they, they, they had a common cause. And the international team, you know, we say the same thing. We're like, oh, well, we've got to get together. But we just – we hadn't. And we narrowly lost by a point in 1996. And that's the reason why we won in 1998 is because that team was basically unchanged. And um, we changed a captain. There was some bad blood, all sorts of things. And um, so we felt like we had unfinished business. And and we were like a really good boxer that was worthy of a rematch. That we're gonna we're gonna be better trained, better prepared. And we had a golf course that most of us knew. Ernie else had the course record there. You know, Greg Norman could play it backwards. You know, like um, so. Yeah, we were yeah, ready. You, and you were picked by um, by Peter Thompson alongside uh, Greg Turner. Um, and the, that partnership um, turned out to be um, <laughs> you did rather well. Let me put it that way. <laughs> Yeah, we got uh, day one. Um, it was a weird one. I was inside the top 10, and then I was getting ready for the PGA Championship in 1998, and I got struck over the, my left eye by a golf ball um, at the golf course where I live at, Lake Nona. I had 30 stitches, so it damaged the orbit of my eye, and I didn't really play, so my, I started dropping down, and, and Peter Thompson really had every right to go, well, I don't know if you're fed or not or whatever. But So he gave me a pick, and then he picked Greg as well, and, and – because we played at so many World Cups and Dunhill Cups together, he threw us together as a foursomes uh, lineup. And foursomes, I've always thought, I've enjoyed it the most, but it's mm. the hardest format. So he decided that we were going to go against, you know, we were going to go together, and um, we we got drawn against, you know, in in 1998, Marco Mera and mm. David Duval, uh, who were pretty damn good. David had got to number one, and Mera had won two two majors. So I remember Jimmy Roberts. To this day, it's like a little prank. He made me say it in a speech we we're both at once. Um, he said that, oh, you know, we don't have a chance. And to be honest, if I was doing my job now, I'd say the same thing. So I, I hadn't heard the remark, but uh, we win. I make it like a – I miss – I help wrong club Greg, and he hits it about 40 feet past, and, and Duval hits it to two feet. We were one up. So it looks like it's going to be half, and I make a 40-footer mm-hmm. coming down the hill. And I think I nearly broke Greg's arm when I tried to <laughs> high-five him. And then on our way to the media seat, we, we were the first cab off the rank. And someone had told me, they go, oh, you know, that'll be, that'll teach Jimmy Roberts. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, oh, he said you guys didn't have a chance. So, you know, you got to have a story when you go into the media center. And I try to tell some of the younger guys today the same thing. Patrick Cantley, actually, we had a big conversation on that once. And, um, you know, you can always say drive six on 40 foot putt, but it's not a really good story, right? <laughs> so I'm like, well, you know, I just, so I proceeded to do what everybody else should do. I lie, and I say I heard what Jimmy said. Then I said I heard what uh, you know one of the one of the uh, American commentators had said about you know Greg Turner and myself that we had uh, no chance to win today. So I said the team you know they got together and just said you know prove them wrong, show me. I said a few other things obviously, and then they said well who is it? And I didn't know who it was at that stage. And, and anyway, like 
And I'm like, well, you know, I don't really want to get into that right now. It's personal, you know, so I just elaborated and made it worse. And I still wasn't fully fit, so I didn't play in the afternoon. And Jimmy came up to, like, apologize. And um, I was by the side of the fairway, and, and Ernie Els was playing with uh, Vijay Singh and, and Four Ball Bettable. And Ernie was about to take the club back. And Jimmy was about to say sorry. And I went, just hang on a minute, Jimmy. Just let him play first, please. So now I've, like, <laughs> iced him as well. And so he thought we got over this this really, 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 you know, bad relationship. And and I sort of let it play out for the, you know, the rest of things. So we had this really antsy, well, the American media is dis- dissing us. You know, we've got no creep. You know, everybody thinks, you know, we're whitewashed, we're terrible. And so we let that whole narrative play out. So fast forward, I completely forget about it. Now I'm doing TV. It's 10, 15 years later. And we're doing a function at Bay Hill. And Jimmy, you know, is NBC Golf Channel in those days. Well, NBC had the weekend Golf Channel Thursday, Friday. So it was Kelly Tillman, Jimmy Roberts, and myself. And um, so someone's talking about the story. And uh, and Jimmy had heard about it. And Jimmy, we're just about to go on the stage. And um, so Jimmy goes, oh, you know, I just want to, you know, presence come. I said, what are you talking about, Jimmy? So he rekindles the story. And I said, Jimmy, that was, bull. I didn't even know. That yeah. was just bull, really. I had no idea. He goes, what? So I tell him the story. I said, look, hey, we're just, we're just clamoring for something. So anyway, I forget about it. We go up on stage and somebody asks me a question and Jimmy interrupts and goes, now hang on a minute. I'm going to ask him a question. And he, and he proceeds because he wants yeah. it off his chest. So he proceeds to do the whole story about the president's cup. Yeah. So I just said, yeah, it was just things that you do to try and, um, motivate yourself. So, so I've apologized about six times for it, but, but yeah, yeah. So, but it was great. It was to be, part of a team um when i was a kid i said i played a lot of other sports and team sports i loved rugby league and that to be part of a team is something special golf is a this great game that had got me through a tough time in my life and given me everything i'd got but to play alongside 11 others and oddly enough you know working with uh, nick felder like we've talked a lot about that like in a weird way um it gives you back balance as a person when you realize that People are so important in your life in the biggest moments. And, um, yeah, I'll always, always, always remember that. Callaway's new Rogue ST drivers represent a breakthrough in driver performance. The Rogue ST drivers are Callaway's fastest, most stable drivers ever. Callaway's industry-leading innovations, including their tungsten speed cartridge, jailbreak speed frame, and an AI-designed flash face, are engineered for maximum speed with exceptional levels of forgiveness. Think speed? Go rogue with Callaway, the kings of distance. To find out which rogue ST driver is right for you, visit callawaygolf.com.au. Frank, the, the people listening to this will be wondering why the hell I haven't asked you anything about your broadcasting, or not too much anyway. Um, and the, the question that keeps coming up is, what's his relationship like with Brando Chambly? <laughs> so there you go. First question. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, it it started off different. I played a lot with Brandel. Um, not a lot, actually, a little bit when I came across. Never had a problem on the golf course. And then we started off at the Golf Channel at the same time. He had already worked for ABC, tried out. He'll admit to it, didn't really work out. Um, he struggled more with live golf. So you know, as luck would have it, you know, I was felt like I was robbed and out of the game of golf. Meanwhile, I joined Golf Channel, which is a fledging network in those days. And it's about to start a brand new show that year, which is called Live From. And um, 
it was a chance to have uh, people work together. And, and to be honest, early on, we had a lot of fun. Um, there was a, a Beat Brandle segment. We weren't allowed, you know, they couldn't afford to travel to a lot of them, like the Augusta. So <clears throat> Brandle would be put in a dome. And uh, I don't know if you know a guy called Reed Burton. He would be asking the viewers questions, see if you, you got 10 questions, see if you could stump Brandle. So we had a lot of fun. And, and then it just changed. Uh, there was some new leadership came in. And I think, and, and I'd like to think Brandle would admit, he changed his style a little bit and became a little more um, rebunctious. <laughs> And also, I, as as to say the least, the more I got into it, the more I wanted to do live golf. So I was still doing live golf. He'd st- we were both doing the Champions Tour uh, at the same time. So I was working with Jim Kelly, who's still a friend to this day. And Brandon was working with Rich Lerner, who he works with today. So they were the two teams for the Champions Tour. That was the only – we had that and, uh, and the Buy.com in those days. And Keith Hirschland was the producer. So I learned a lot off Keith and to this day too, you know, every now and again, I'll, I'll ask him a few questions TV related. So I felt my mind was, I still, my unfinished business was still with golf. So I still wanted to see it from a golf point of view. And then in, to, to credit Brandel, he went in a different direction, which was analytics, basically shot link. It was also starting up and he went down the yeah. shot link train which was great when we were working together. So I'd go to the range and get a different perspective, and he would look at ShotLink and come up with something different. And therefore, you know, just by the nature of that, we would often naturally finish up in disagreement, which – and a lot of it was well-formed arguments as far as I was concerned. Um, and to me, as long as the viewer was left thinking or or maybe they learned something, I was okay with that. To me, it wasn't about, you know, yeah. scoring a point or whatever. And, um, and, and it just developed from that, but – you know, I'm, it's a show I'm really proud of. The people that worked on it, and um, I was lucky enough to be part of that. And then, you know, I developed a an area called Tita Greens. I'd go out to the golf course. So, so to me, when we were doing a show, I felt like I would give him more time. For example, because if they were going to run a Tita Green segment, I was getting two or three minutes here as well. But <clears throat> it was tougher when they changed the set to four and uh, David Duvall because it just seemed mm-hmm. to be more. I don't know. There was more bad blood, and and sadly, I think I think the show was worse for it. But um, Brandel's work ethic, even to this day, is great. I, I like that. Um, I just didn't like when it was. We call it a hijack in TV. If someone deliberately goes out and tries to, you know, when you prepare, if you know you're going to talk about Tiger Woods, so then someone turns it in another direction. So every now and again, there was things like that, and that's where things would get, would go down, uh, you know, an ugly rabbit hole. But yeah, I was proud of the show, and I was proud of a lot of the things we're doing. So, to be honest, we didn't eat together a lot. Um, I didn't think we had to, and, and Brandon would say the same. But if he was on his game and I was on my game, I, it was a show that I, I enjoyed, and, and we really, I, I thought we put a lot into it. Uh, when we're off our game, or if it got contentious and over the line, yeah, I always left with a bad feeling when it when it hit those moments. And there got to be a few more of those, sadly, yeah. But I still have more yeah, good well, memories. Well, you're not alone, Frank. Um, I, I'm a very proud, and I, I don't think I'm, I'm far from alone in, in this. That uh, I, I've been blo- long time blocked on on Twitter by Brandel, so um, he, he doesn't really react well to, to a contrary point of view. Put it that way. Yeah, I love. He, he's a you know, like his family, as a his brother, is a, a very good lawyer, and, and I, I love it. You know, as you do, your articles are provocative. Um, I know Eamon Lynch mm. also does a great job. I think when people make you think, it's a bit like we're staying at the at the at the top of the show. Whether it's about Saudi, I, I don't think we can just disregard things. 
no, no idea is a bad idea. At least look at it and maybe it, it sheds more light. So when I would go into a show and he would present a different time, a, t- uh, a different take on it, for me, I'm like, okay, I'll have a little think of that. We'd go to commercial or whatever. And sometimes it, it allowed me to go to a different area or see it differently yeah. or explain it differently. And, um, Oddly enough, that's but but live golf to me was always where I wanted to to go. Be part of it because unfinished. So it was it was tough doing both together. And then then I think at times when if you if you think the show's becoming more about arguments and people getting closer and closer to that, and more about doing the right thing. And also I remember you know like sadly with with those type of shows, you can say one thing on a Monday and say the exact opposite on a Tuesday, and the viewer of, of, often doesn't recollect that and I, and I think that's doing them a disservice yeah i mean uh, how, how do you view yourself now um i, I asked this because uh, I, I thought i spent a fair bit of time talking to peter alice who's no longer with us um and he peter alice was a genuinely certainly a great ball striker and a wonderful player for a long time um till he got the yips which he his stories about the yips were were great fun <laughs> to, at least to listen to mm. um but he he's he, thought of himself as a broadcaster he stopped thinking of himself as a player and that made him a better broadcaster he wasn't out there thinking of himself as, as still part of the gang if you like um how do you view that and I mean, it's a kind of tightrope that you have to walk isn't it as a, as a former player yeah i think peter got it right i was lucky enough to work alongside with him um actually the the open championship at st andrews where zach johnson won was the last mm. time we worked together um and he's he's a good influence on my career. Uh, he he was allowed. I got to be careful how I say this, only because it, he was allowed to have that perspective because of the time he came through. I mean, he has the disdain for social media. I, I I also have that in my job for that because I think what is happening now too. You know, whether it's mental health, which we can conveniently use that phrase if we want to, or, or it's legit with a lot of people. So we're in this in this world now where you know it's likes and clicks and all sorts of things. So. You know, Peter was anything other than that. Peter, I remember um, giving it that. You know, I'd just come over, done American TV, and and you know, I was I'd gone through this phase where it's a fantastic shot and it's great and it's marvelous and you know, it's all that sort of thing. It's running out of superlatives, and um, they would not always put Peter and I together. The BBC would do like forty-five minute stints. So you'd work in rotation. Then Peter and I would obviously we'd get like a a good time during the day. I do Golf Channel in the evening, and it was Garcia, and uh, and Garcia had like you know hit a shot or whatever it is. And I'm trying to think of the golf course, he missed it left away from the out of bounds, and I was like, oh, you know, just off the green. He goes, and then Peter just looked at me. That was a poor yeah. shot, disgusting <laughs> for sort of thing. And it was, I, and he he gave me a, a wry smile too. But it's like he he got the temperature of an event so well in the moment and and he created a rhythm that sadly is lacking um in in a lot of broadcasts and but he had um he had tenure so he he could you know he could disagree and get away with it with producers and the like and i think sadly we we are in this industry where we're the more we become a servant to it whether it's the PJ Tour or the European Tour or a sponsor or whatever, then we do become less objective. You know, the, the, there is a place for the greats. I, Bill McLaren yeah. in rugby was the greatest rugby commentator I ever listened to. I, I read his, his, his autobiography, and um, 
Richie Bonneau, in my opinion, Australian, was the greatest cricket commentator. And I have on my phone, which I actually gave to Jim Nance, it's uh, when he was trying to help Tony Romo, it's Richie's mm. announcing laws. And um, and they're brilliant. You should research them. Yeah, I'll send you And they're all trained by the BBC. Yeah, they're trained by the BBC. And, and I, I remember talking to Peter about it. And Peter said when he trained, um, and he was he was the same as Richie. He was in his early 30s. He could still play. But you know, they didn't earn as much money. So he was offered a job by the BBC and he thought, oh, great, I'm going to call golf. And they go, well, no, no, you're going to go in this little cabin here and you're going to, you're going to learn. And he would have a producer hanging over him and he'd, no, no, you don't do that. This terrible look, you know, the cameras is and all this sort of business. And, and, and then finally he was allowed to actually go and do a tournament. And this guy came with him mm. like training wheels. And then one day the guy wasn't there. So they were trained properly. And I think what's happening a lot now is that people just, in TV, um, they just want they want a magical ex player to be brilliant, and we don't you know, we haven't studied the languages, the various languages the same way that you have. You know, whatever people are fluent in, whether Spanish is their natural language or you know whatever China, you you name it. I mean, we're all different when we grow up. So you're just going to be thrown in this in this um, genre, and 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 you've got to be, I don't know, prophetic and marvelous mm. and all sorts of things with no training on on when you should talk and when not. Whereas the best were actually trained. And, and oddly enough, I had this conversation with Jim Nance when they were getting ready with Tony Romo, and um, I, I passed on that. He was curious, and we had a couple of conversations. And Jim would fly in on a Monday, I think it was, after the tournament, and they Tony just didn't do a broadcast. I mean, they spent three or four months with him. So he was actually trying to get because they wanted more of him. So, so where you fit in, I think you know from the Alice's and that is is the more you can be you, which I know is really easy to say but hard to be. Where as honest as possible without without fear of somebody writing something on Twitter. You know that's yeah. why I don't like you know like we all want to be liked. So you think oh was that good? And someone goes oh that's the dumbest statement I've ever heard. So that makes you go back into a shell, or they don't get what you're saying, or that's their favorite player. Like look at the motor race in the weekend. You know you got Lewis Hamilton fans on one side and Max Verstappen fans on the other. I mean that's quintessential sport, isn't it? They they both can't mm. be right and they both can't be wrong. So and th- and that's what you want. If it's a really good sporting event. The Johnny Millerism, 50% of the people should hate you and 50% of the people should like you. But no broadcaster wants to be hated by 50% of the people. So you've got to get beyond that. And I think that's where Peter had found that sweet spot. And I actually think he got um, – I'm not going to say he got better as he got older, but there was a period of time, probably within three or four years before he stopped, where he was just brilliant. Do you share Absolutely my view brilliant. that there, there, there would be a market out there for uncensored commentary? People would pay money to listen to exactly what you think. Yeah, but what's your definition of uncensored? I know you said exactly what you think. What's your definition? You swear or, you know, you... you. Um, yeah, I mean, I maybe we draw the line at that. I think it's unnecessary. It's a, it's, it's lazy if you have to use um, curse words. But um, I, I do know, I mean, it frustrates me a little bit when I, I, I know people like yourself, I mean... You know, terrific knowledge of the game and all the rest of it, and and maybe it's a time thing on television because it's all sound bites to an extent when you're com- certainly when you're Correct. commentating. Correct. Um, but it, it's it's frustrating to me knowing the people, certainly the the lads on Sky, and who I know really well. I mean, they they don't get the opportunity to to show how much they know about the subject, or very rarely, and that's a frustration to me. I think that the television falls short in that respect. 
Yeah, well, first and foremost, television's a visual media. I know that's stating the obvious, but I remember Keith Hirschland telling me that first and foremost. And then to go back to Peter Ellis, when I talked to him about broadcasting and I said, well, you know, what do you think the problems are with the European or the, the American broadcast? Obviously, I was more interested in where I work right now. And he told me, he says, you, you know what I think? And he wasn't trying to be hypercritical. He said, often they put the spaces in the wrong places. Mm. And if, if you really listen to a broadcast, and I go back to Keith Hirschland, who I've already mentioned, if you and I were to play golf, and you're about to tee off first hole at Sunningdale, and I have my cell phone here, and I pick it up, and I start talking to a friend while you're teeing off, you would think I'm the rudest guy in the world, mm. justifiably so. And sometimes announcing is like that. So, well, why would you talk in the middle of somebody's swing? I know, you know you're not out there right next to them, but if you actually look at the way the game's played, and I remember Keith telling me, and I mean, it was as early on in my career, he said, if you've got something more important than the shot being hit, you should get another job. Mm. And I, I promise you, you know, I've written that down. It's on my phone and, and it, it's so true. Hey, have I broken it? Yes, I have. But you have to respect the shot. But but now you and you, there's so many stats. I go back to whether it's live from. So here's John Huggin on the second. And now we're putting up your driving accuracy and what you shot yesterday and all this. And, you know, how many times you've had a two-shot lead into Sunday. So by the time we, we get onto the hole, and, and maybe it's the hardest hole on the golf course or the wind's changed, there's water there, and you desperately want to get in, is, this is a key hole for John Huggin. Mm. And you don't get it in. And you invariably hit it out of bounds or hit it in the lake and it costs you the tournament. Someone thinks I'm a right prat because I never got it out. Like, well, why didn't you tell the viewer? And I'm like, well, we got a stat and we got this and we got that. So I'm not trying to blame the producer, but there's so many things where people want to show you what we can do to help. But in the end, to quote a Peter House, it's still a golf tournament. So when you, as a, as an announcer, what I've learned to do, sadly, I really want to tell people this second hole is key. But I have I have to make a choice, and John Hagen has just teed it up, and he deserves space. So you let the you know, and maybe it's my hole, um, but, and, it, and so you you have a conscious conscious decision to say nothing because your shot's important. Yeah, too often though, and I, that's not always done now. Yeah, I get the feeling that there's somebody, as you just kind of have touched on, that there's somebody behind the commentator pulling them back, you know, restraining them from from giving us everything that they think. I mean, I. I won't share the name of this person. I'll tell you afterwards if you like, but a very well-known commentator I bumped into at the end of a working day at a tournament in a car park at a tournament. And uh, he, he said to me, oh, well, said nothing, kept my job, you know, which I thought was the most appalling statement I'd ever heard. And I'm sure that's not the, the that's the exception rather than the norm, but there is some of that. I mean, that, that, that kind of leads me into the frustration that I feel sometimes is that I don't, I don't feel like I'm getting everything that the player or the, the everything that sorry that the commentator knows about the subject and it, it's it's frustrating for me there's a flip side of that it's fr frustrating for a broadcaster but if if you just turn the sound off right if you turn the sound off and i'm not advocating for people to necessarily do but if you start with no sound and you go okay we've got We've got a tournament. We've got an open championship being played, or you know, the, the Masters, and, and they stand on the first tee, and you see it, and you go, "Okay, well, well what do you really want? Well, you, I'd like to hear the hit." Mm. Okay, so we're going to put the sound on the hit. And what else would you like? And then you go, "Okay, well, it'd be nice if they could tell me about the hole." So you let, you started to reintroduce it, but the, but the problem is, is you've got through the years, you, you've got people like David Ferrity that were brilliant. A good David Ferrity was brilliant. Mm. 
and you've got you know his react but you needed a good foil which was to him it was gary mccord they were tremendous together when you split them apart they weren't the same um johnny miller was tremendous it worked so well with dan hicks because johnny miller was so erudite it created enormous gaps for everybody else. You, it's different now with Paul Azinger because mm. Paul Paul speaks more like a analyst type guy on the TV. So you know he will use twice as twice the amount of words that a Johnny would. But if jo- Johnny would leave it hanging out there, so then it was up to Dan Hicks to go in amongst the time they had. Do you just leave it hanging out there, or Johnny, did you really mean that? So so you 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 had space. Peter Ellis was once again going back to that. He would create space, so he would almost grab the microphone and the BBC has a really good way of doing it to be honest and um, the European way they use lip what's called lip mics you know so you put them down and you pick them up yeah, they're not yeah. just like a normal boom mic so so when you pick them up they they activate so if I'm holding my mic it means that I'm about to talk so nobody else is going to talk and when I put it down somebody else can mm. so what I learned with Peter when it when it was really important he would grab his mic and it wasn't just to say hey I've got the stage is he, he was controlling whether we knew it or what at the time, the rhythm of the show. He knew it was such an important time mm. that less had to be said, not more. So now maybe the reaction was going to be afterwards and he would turn to me and ask a question, which was always, you know, very poignant and go and always directed. So he, he, he created space even for me. And, but that, but that, that took a, a guy that was at the top of his game. Mm. But I go back to all the other things that we want to put in the broadcast, which are they're, they're analytics now. I, I was watching um, NFL on the weekend, and and someone had gone for the extra point, and where they have that play at the end, and they try and do another touchdown, so it's two points rather than a conversion, which was one. And um, anyway, they had a halftime show, and the guys proceeded to say, "Well, look, they're just looking at the pure analytics, you know." Like, and th- that's my problem with with just using numbers. Like, Shotlink is a great tool. And we all use it now. We can default to it. I can find out how many greens you hit and all that. But <clears throat> if you just say he has an 80% chance of hitting the fairway, w- w- was it really worth saying that? Was that that important? So now we have to decide, rather than watch the screen and watch the player's mannerisms or did he really hurt his wrist, we're getting caught up looking at another piece of apparatus, a laptop, on the numbers. Mm. So, so I think, to your point, we're getting dragged away from – um, I'll finish with one more Peter Ellis story to sort of illustrate the point. <clears throat> there was a producer that was going to was working with Peter the, for the very first time, and um, you know they, they're, they're looking in the booth there, and the, all the monitors, the TV monitors, and the TV screens are there. And uh, this young guy, who's a, a fairly prominent producer now, goes, "Mr. Ellis, you know, would you like to go and look at the golf course? I'll take you around and look at the flags." And Peter <laughs> just completely didn't even respond this time and he goes excuse me mr ellis he goes i heard you he said well would you like to go i'll take you around the golf course he said well what would that do he said well you can see where the pins are and and uh you know where they have them pins or whole locations we can get into that as well <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh and 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 you know, we can show you that in the bunkers and all that and he said and he said laddie he said uh, what's this thing in front of me and he goes oh you mean the tv screen the monitor he goes yeah the monitor he said uh uh, can you tell me what's going to be on that? And he goes, well, well, no, the show hasn't started yet. He said, right. He said, well, when you can, come back, and then I'll listen to you. <laughs> and so basically, Peter Peter all, was always, always guided by the picture. Yeah. So he either told you – Bill McLaren was the same thing, same way. They either told you what wasn't on the screen or what you might have missed. That's why they were great. Yeah, I think well, Peter Alice told me this story. That he, he learned a lot from Henry Longhurst, you know, way back in the day. 
Um, and he told the story, uh, which I've recounted many times, that Brian Barnes is playing the road hall at St Andrews and he's just short left in that horrible spot where you never want to be and he's got a putt up over the ridge and mm. near, the, near the bunker and, you know, the pins behind the bunker. And Longhurst sets it up by saying, that, you know, if he's, if he's not too careful here, he very well may putt into the bunker. Silence. So Barnes hits the putt. Sure enough, it goes up and back into the sand. There's a few more seconds of silence, and all Longhurst says is, "Ah, oh, well, there we are," <laughs> and that's all that was needed, really. Yes, <laughs> perfect. But you know, I do. But I've actually gone back over. I, I was trying to get ready for Augusta because the way we do it with CBS, you know, we have X, X holes. And and when I first started to do TV, I, you know, I was all more like the analyst, the golfer-minded thing. And now I, I have the luxury, the privilege to do part of Amen Corner, 11 and 12. Um, but it's more of a, I don't know, it's more of a host role, one that I was never really trained for, because it's more about painting pictures, which uh, early on I was, I was, I always struggled with, to be honest. I was thinking more about the guy's grip and, and technique and the shot and the flag and, and, and very much golf, golf, golf. But then I realized, you know, when they, when they've made the turn and they go down 10 and they go down 11, you know, it's just, it's, it is beautiful pictures. And it's, it's, for some people, it's take a breath. Mm. For some people, it's get ready for the craziest ride they're ever going to have. For some, it's the first time they get to see water. You know, there's all these things that happen there. Then there's, you know, when it's a past champion, when, when they put out an 11, there's going to be the famous walk up to the 12th tee with, as we say, patrons at Augusta, which they get, you know, so it's laying out at the right moment for the appropriate applause, maybe picking something out, maybe, you know, remembering their father's name, you know, first got them into golf and maybe what age they were when they first played as they're walking back, all those things, you know, the Hogan Bridge, you know, with 271, his scorecard written on it, you know, 1953, that type of thing, and then go across the other side with the Nelson. So it's, it's, it's landmarks, a lot of what people know, but so, but I struggle with it because I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm endeavouring to sound like an announcer, which I think is that's where you go off kilter and, and get in trouble. And anyway, so I was scrambling to just trying to get ready for the Masters as a few years ago, two or three years ago. And um, my my favourite Masters is 1975. I was 15 and, mm. and I was a Johnny Miller fan and Weisskopf to this day, sadly, is still struggling um, health-wise. Yeah. And Jack Nicholas, I'd never heard Jack Nicholas. Talk with these are the top three guys in the world. So that was the one Masters I got to watch as a kid in New Zealand, and and I couldn't remember who did the commentary to be honest at that that particular time. But there I was seeing these players that I like. Wow, wouldn't it be great to be like that and maybe play there one day? Anyway, so I'm getting ready for the Masters, and lo and behold, Vince Scully, who's arguably the most famous baseball voice, mm. had called the was part of the broadcast in 1975. So I started reading about Vince Scully getting ready, and Vince Scully described calling golf as a relay sport. And remember, this is when they weren't just blasting the pictures with, you know, pro traces and and stats and all that. So it really was people that were trained for radio, because all these great voices that you've referred yeah. to learned in radio, really. Yeah. And, and, and golf is great on the radio. McLaren, same thing. Sorry to interrupt. It is. Yeah. Um, more... No, Maureen, I love Maureen. I've worked with Maureen, but on the radio, she's fantastic. Her, mm. The way in which she describes a shot, I always, um, I always make a mess of her surname, so I'm not even going to try. Uh, Maureen, um, yeah, and uh, yeah, and the good lass actually. But 
Yes, that's it. Yeah. And um, so anyway, I go back to Vince Scully. So I'm like, Vince Scully called the Masters? I'm like, he's a baseball guy. Mm. So I start doing uh, some more research, and he's talking about Amy and Corner in specific, you know, in, specifically in the sense of the sound. He said, you know, it's a, it's a bit like a soup bowl. You know, when a, when a cannon goes off, it reverberates around the rim of the bowl. Mm. And that's what happens, especially in the corner of Amen Corners. But all his words were very descriptive. And when you hear him in, in baseball, he would often, at times, if it was a specific moment where it looked like a record was going to be broken or, you know, the, the equivalent of, you know, I don't know, one bowler getting all 10 wickets, he would, in amongst the commentary, put the date mm. or the time. And it was little things that you don't note, notice till later on and, and cause you're realizing that we are, we are earmarking time at a specific thing as a Tiger Woods shot or, or whatever. So there's things that you try and glean from that going forward. But, you know, CBS have given me a chance now to try and at least become a better broadcaster and, and develop that part that hopefully I can, you know, some of the things that I've learned from a lot of the people I've been lucky enough to work, you know, work alongside that, that you become a better you in translating that to the viewer. But, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 different. So, so With all our tools that we have now. Sorry, I was just going to say. So, you, you think of yourself more as a broadcaster than as, as a player now? Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, I mean that that makes as I say that just lends to my argument. I think the the best two, you know, certainly in my experience were Peter Alice and Johnny Miller, and to me that was the the first thing they did. They decided that they were broadcasters and not players anymore, and. You've you've done the same thing. I think that that's a good. Uh, you've you've got two uh, two good models there. I think. Oh yeah, but but you know you still need the information. You know Johnny would go to the range, mm. and I think you can. You know I've I've had many a time. You know I've said something a player hasn't liked. And I'm like, and, and that's not everybody will do it. And they go, here we go. So you go down to the range, and if somebody had, you know, they call you over, you get the get the finger, and they come over here, and you get an earful or whatever, and then you hopefully you try and say, well look, you know, if you had that shot again, is that what you'd want? And, and you move on, but you go, for example, if somebody misses the green, you know, if a shot's horrible and, and they miss it in a, in a tough spot, the up and down becomes that much more remarkable. Mm. But if it's just an average shot, they just, oh, they just pulled it to the left, you know, it's sort of, oh, it's a little off. And so therefore the up and downs, well, it's just a little, you know, chip and a little putt, isn't it? So it becomes very sort of ordinary. Whereas, you know, a poor shot for a top player is a poor shot. And misses the green, but consequently too is the chance to redeem themselves. And I think sports about that. Sports about dropping a catch mm. and then playing brilliantly the rest of the game. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And then, and then you know, you become a man. You know, the boy, the, you become a man the rest of the game. So, and I think you have to point that out. And and but sadly, that's one thing where I don't know of any tour really that in their annual general meetings invite the media um, to to go and say. And maybe you don't have to, but just to go, this is exactly how it does go down. Believe it or not, we, as you know, when you write the article that's provocative, though you've opened up a bunch of people's minds, made them think. A lot of people will take issue to it, but you've yeah. made them think. So you've actually done your job, but nobody credits you for making them think. So you've actually made them a better version themselves. So, yeah, you don't get a medal for it, but you've done your job. Frank, that's a good place to stop. I think I've kept you for an hour and 45 minutes, believe it or not. Um, it's gone very quickly, Hi. certainly on this end. I hope you feel the same. Um, thank you so much for your time. It's uh, It's been a, a privilege to listen to you. I'm, I'm, I'm one of your biggest fans. I hate to tell you that, but uh, it's true. Um, and thanks for coming on.
No, hugging, mate. You, you've always uh, you got it right. I, I, I love the fact that um, you still believe it's a great game. You know, I think it starts there. I, lo- I love, I love that you share your pain. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of that. Just, yeah. No, no, no. But when people stop doing that, then we start making really big mistakes. So if 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 the, if things change for the better, it's because of people like you that never gave up. Uh, wow. Uh, so much to chew on from that chat, even just in those last couple of words from Frank Nobolo. When people stop loving the game, we start making really big mistakes. There's a sentiment both to consider and wholeheartedly agree with. Well, that was a hell of a way to kick off 2022, and I've got to say a tough act to follow, but I think we might have just the tonic with our next episode when we meet a woman who's on the path to becoming the first female course superintendent at Royal Melbourne. Yeah, being a manager, I guess not only in greenkeeping, but you know, you, you've got to have um, authority, you've got to have empathy, you've got to, there's so many different skills that you need to have and women have just as many as men. So I, I can't see, I can't see why not in the future that a woman could be a superintendent at any Sandbelt course or any, you know, Sydney course or Pine Valley, Cypress Point, who knows, you know, the old course. But um, I think, yeah, very much so nowadays, anything's within reach. That's Jerry O'Callaghan, course superintendent at Sandringham Links, next time on The Thing About Golf.